The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey everybody, I'm Vince, uh, one of the pastors here at Love City Church. Uh, Thankful to be gathered here with all of you, and I'm really excited to study God's Word together, so let's head that way. If you would, please turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 40 together. Uh, We're continuing this week in our sermon series. It's called The Disciples' Path. Uh, Jesus is recorded five different times in the Gospels, saying something either identical or real similar to what he said in Matthew 16, verse 24. Here's what he said there. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so what we are doing in this series is simply examining what it looks like to follow Jesus. While we know that there's going to be some unique elements for each person's journey, because everybody's different, they're going to come in at different entry points, God's built them in different ways, has different plans for them, there is going to be some unique elements. There's also trail markers along the path. There are certain things that the Lord expects each of us to do if we belong to him. So those are the things that we're looking at through this series. And so thus far, we've talked about salvation by grace through faith, right, in Christ alone, Uh, reaching out in faith and receiving God's mercy. That's only made possible because Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we should have and then rose from the grave. So we're thankful for that. Uh, salvation is the first step onto this path. You can't do any of the rest of the journey without first receiving the free gift of salvation by faith, surrendering to Christ, and becoming a Christian. So we, we then talked about the next step. That's water baptism. That's where believers publicly declare their allegiance to King Jesus. And then last week, we talked about church membership, which we're, and that's where each believer commits to join the family of God on the mission of God for the glory of God. And so those have been great. Uh, The next four weeks, including this week, they're going to kind of be dual purpose um, because the subjects that we're going to be examining in the next four weeks, they're also expectations we set forth for members here at Love City Church. But let me say why it's going to be dual purpose. Because the reason that we have these expectations for members here is because we believe these are expectations for every faithful follower of Jesus. When we prayerfully considered what it would look like to be a member of this church, we didn't want to add or take away from what God has already plainly stated uh, that he desires for his children. And and God has shown us what he expects of us through his word. And so this is the only source that we should look to for these things. And so that is where we're going to look. Amen. Now, someone might say at this point, if they're listening carefully and thinking, they might say, hey, I I thought you said salvation was... You know, it's by God's grace we receive it through faith. So what's all this talk about these other expectations? Seems like you're pulling a bait and switch here. Well, I hope that some of you are thinking through that. That's great. That's I'm glad that we're running this through the grid of logic, but also God's word. So the truth is, before we are saved by God's grace and rescued from slavery to sin and self, we are not a part of the family of God. The Bible's very clear about that. And so... None of the things that we are talking about in this series, beyond the first week, which was salvation by grace, none of the rest of them are going to have any part in us going from slaves of darkness to children of light. 
All the rest of this is after the fact, okay? It is only by God's glorious power and his great mercy that we are rescued. But once he sets us free, he doesn't want us to live like slaves anymore. And that's a lot of what we're talking about here. He expects us, God expects us to do something with the freedom that he purchased for us by the blood of Christ. So this sermon series is really teaching us how to live as free men and women under the benevolent lordship of our Savior King. Praise God for all of that. Now, one of the things that humans are unable to do as slaves to sin is to live in real, authentic, loving, trust-filled, and vibrant community with one another. Now, this is not to say that unsaved people groups have never been able to reflect in some ways the beauty of gospel community, but without the active work of the Holy Spirit upon the hearts and minds of free men and women, we cannot reach the full potential we have to live out God's design for how we relate to each other. So what we are going to do is we're going to read Acts 2. It's a short description of what it looks like when people set free by Jesus and his gospel begin to truly love one another, and live life together in community. And so like I said, we're going to start in verse 40. Just to let you know where we're at in context, we're breaking into this text right after Peter went out in the street and preached a straight fire sermon, okay? He went out in the street and just started going ham. Uh, it's awesome. You should go back and read it after we're done because uh, if, if you need some motivation, it'll, it'll do it. Uh, but... So he, he does that. He's out in the street preaching. And, and the Holy Spirit, is, it's, it's, he's moving upon the hearts of the crowd, and, and the crowd's crying out, what shall we do? And, and Peter responds with, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so basically that's what's happened, and now we're picking up in verse 40. So let's read verses 40 through 47. We're going to see here what it looks like as people begin to relate to each other as Christians. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praise God for his word. So this is the very beginning of Christian community. And we see a few distinguishing marks here. We see radical generosity and unity according to verses 45 and 46. And we're going to cover those in more depth later in this series. But for tonight, let's hone in on verse 42. Let me read that to you again. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You see, when we are made free through the power of the gospel, we don't just relate differently to our Father who freed us, 
but also to those who become our brothers and sisters in his family. It changes the way we relate to everybody, okay? Uh, we would relate even then to unbelievers differently, right? It changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So here we see the early church community devoting themselves to three things, okay? Uh, so, someone counted as four. We're, I, we're doing a combo deal on two, okay? So <clears throat> what are the three things? The first is the apostles' teaching, okay? So what would they have been teaching? The apostles would have been teaching what Jesus taught them and how his life, death, and resurrection were the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what the apostles were teaching. We have much of the apostles' teaching recorded in the New Testament. So now, with the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, and with the New Testament, we have the whole counsel of God's word. And those who are truly God's people will always be devoted to it. Exactly like we see here, these early Christians were. So that's the apostles' teaching, okay? The word of God was being taught. Number two, breaking bread and fellowship. That's the one where you could, you could break it up, but... I'm putting these two together because really they go together well. I know that an argument could be made uh, that you can have fellowship without food. Um, but, I mean, my question to you would be, when was the last time you went to a party that didn't have snacks? Right? Okay, so there's probably a few cute ones in the room saying, oh, I was at a party last week that didn't have snacks. Okay. How long did you stay? <laughs> gotcha. Okay, good. So... <laughs> The truth is, here, here's, here's the point. The truth is, shared meals are a great way to connect, okay? But we'll talk about more on that in a bit. Jesus agrees. I'll, t- I'll show you that, okay? Uh, the third is prayer. Third thing they devoted themselves to, prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. And so, of course, this can be done as individuals. But there is also a necessary element of prayer as a community where we are praying for each other and with each other. And this seemed to flow naturally out of these first believers being set free to serve Jesus. This is what they were focused on. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread together, eating meals together, and prayer. Okay? So, the question is, why do we see these earliest Christians devoting themselves to these three things? It could have been a bunch of other things, but it's these three things that are mentioned. Why are these the marks that rise to the top? Okay? I want to make a case for you that they were simply following the example of Jesus. That the reason why these three things pop up in Acts 2 from these earliest believers and followers of Jesus is because they were just looking at the life of Jesus and following him. And that's really what we're talking about. That's all we're doing is talking about following Jesus and what that looks like, okay? So in John 15, Jesus taught that he is the vine and we are the branches, okay? So if we are going to be connected to him, we're also going to be connected to each other. Right? Do you understand why I'm saying that? If he's the vine and we're the branches, okay? Go out and look at any tree, any vine, any little shrub you want to. Whatever the, the central vine is or stem or trunk that goes down into the ground, it's got these other branches coming off of it. All those branches, yes, they are connected to that central piece where the, the life force is coming from, but they are also connected to one another, all right? And so Jesus knows what he's doing when he picks an analogy, right? It's pretty good. So... We are not called as Christians to a once-a-week exchange of pleasantries during a surface-level interaction, okay? We are called to be so interconnected and interdependent that we operate as one body, according to 1 Corinthians 12. And so Jesus talked about vines and branches in John 15. The Apostle Paul picks up that theme and then opens it up with another analogy, and he says, hey, man, we're one body. 
Yeah, there's hands, there's feet, there's eyes, there's ears, there's different parts, but this thing has to function together because the, the, the mission, the, the reason for the existence of this body, the church, is so crucial and so important. We can't uh, afford factions and, and, and for things to be disjointed and not working together. And so uh, it takes relationship to work together like that, right? Uh, your, your hands connected to your foot in, in a real way, right? And they're they're not independent from each other. Um, if if there's you know if there's trouble coming, they they you know if you're getting chased by a bull or pick the animal that scares you the most, you're in the woods. There's a bear or whatever that thing's coming for you. Your hand and your foot's in the same amount of danger, and they're going to work together to get away from that thing, whether it's running or it's climbing or whatever. You know, Dwight Schrute would tell you if it's a bear, you might as well just lay down because you're not going you're not getting away anyways. But you know, may, maybe another animal you'd have a better chance. All right. A bunch of people in the room are like, oh, I, I don't know what that is because I only read the Bible and, you know, watch McGee and me, but <clears throat> that's a reference from The Office. How many of you know what McGee and me is? Go ahead and age yourself in this room right now. Raise your hand if you know what McGee Some of you, all right, I saw a hand go up and do this. Listen, it's okay, man. Some of us, we, it's all right. My granddad owned a Christian bookstore, man. He had McGee and me, like, it had to have been VHSs. Um, and he also had a big wall of jelly bellies in there. So I would get jelly beans and I would get McGee and me. And I had a good time. All right, that's got nothing to do with this, so let's keep moving. Um, one, one of the ways we seek to cultivate real, authentic, loving, and vibrant community is through having community groups. You've already heard that mentioned in the service today. And, and, and for us, this is not some add-on program that we have because we think it's cool. We see community groups as part of how we faithfully live out our calling as the family of God. It's part of how we cultivate an environment that opens up the opportunity for us to do what it is we see these believers in Acts 2 doing, which I'm going to build a case for you was just a response to what Jesus did. And we're all supposed to be following Jesus, right? Is that what we're doing? Is that why we're here? I know you're not here because of me. Uh, there's a lot of cooler things you could be doing than listening to me talk right now. And so we're here because of Jesus, all of us, and we're following him, which I'm very thankful for. So I do want to say this, though, before we go any farther, because it's important we also don't think community groups are the only time or the only way we can experience the joy of authentic community, okay? We, we know that, we understand that, but they are a great way to get started doing that. Our hope is that as relationships flourish, we are more and more, we're living together day by day. So that's the language you hear in Acts 2, day by day. Um, you don't get this idea that, um, you know, Peter and James and John and the other apostles were having to run around trying to wrangle everybody together to get them to come to a service once a week. Or, you know, they were trying to try to lay guilt trips on people. That's, you don't get that sense at all. You get that sense that these people heard the truth of the gospel, realized what Jesus had done for them, that they were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that they, then they couldn't help themselves. That day by day, whether it was in the temple once a week or it was day by day in homes, they couldn't wait to get together, to eat together, to sing together, to study God's word together, to be with one another, to celebrate the goodness of what Christ had done. And I hope as we read this, we're able to judge ourselves by that standard. You know, because for some of us, man, we've been doing this a long time, and sometimes this isn't uh, flowing out of an excitement because we're following Jesus and we're doing it together and we get to be a part of gospel mission. For some of us, it slides into this ditch of just, it's just duty and it's grind and, and some of it's guilt-based, and that's, none of that is the beautiful picture that we see painted here. None of that is what Jesus has really called us to or what he wants for us. Uh, he wants far better for us. And uh, real, authentic community is a gift, not an obligation. It's a privilege, man. It's a beautiful thing. I say praise God to that. 
Our community groups are modeled after what we see here in Acts 2, and we believe what we see in Acts 2 is modeled from the life of Jesus. Now, I know I've said that a bunch. I've been setting that up, but I also know that that might seem like kind of a stretch. So allow me to show you quickly uh, why we believe this. Because some of you might be thinking, like, does, does Jesus need what people get out of community? Well, I'll let you judge as we go forward here. Uh, so the first thing, what are we talking about? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so they're studying the word of God together. They were uh, fellowshipping, breaking bread together, right? And they were praying together. Three elements, okay? Was this visible in the life of Jesus? Am I making this up that these followers of Jesus in Acts 2, that the reason why those things are mentioned as what was the hallmarks of what it looked like for them to begin to gel and assemble as the first Christian community, was that just because they picked those things? Was that just what naturally happened because of human whatever? Uh, or was that an instinct thing? Or was it that they really looked at the life of Jesus and said, okay, if we're following him, these are probably the things that are going to be marking us as his people. Okay? You be the judge, all right? First element, did Jesus study and discuss the scriptures like we're saying the first believers in Acts did? Okay? I'm going to read you some scriptures. I'm in Luke 24. Let me read this to you. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Okay, this is after his resurrection. It says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? That's a really fancy way to say, what are you talking about, isn't it? <laughs> what are these words you are exchanging with one another? <laughs> it's Jesus, man. I'm sure, I mean, he can say it however he wants. Okay. And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Oh, Cleopas. Man, don't talk to the risen master like that, brother. You a fool. Okay. Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Would that not have been the Bible study of all Bible studies? <laughs> Road to Emmaus... Jesus is going to throw down everything that has to do with him in the scriptures. I, there's nothing I wouldn't trade to jump in a time machine and sit there for that. I would like to be a fly on a toga at that meeting, for sure. Now, we see all through, so clearly we see Jesus caring about what the scriptures say, teaching what the scriptures say, discussing that with people. That's just one example we see all through the four Gospels where Jesus would teach large crowds, right? And then he would withdraw with his disciples and he would discuss it with them, 
right? He'd kind of leave everyone mystified a little bit in the big crowd, and then he'd pull the disciples aside and say, okay, boys, here's what I'm talking about. Um, he would let the disciples ask him questions, and he would discuss among themselves his answers. There are over 70 times in the Gospels where Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures as he teaches. So Jesus is not just pulling a bunch of ethereal stuff out of the air, though he could, right? He could talk about whatever he wants. He knows everything about everything, right? So he doesn't have to use a reference point, but he does often, and most often when he's teaching, it's flowing up out of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. He's studying the Bible. He's teaching the Bible. He's discussing the Bible with the people that are around him, with his companions. And so I, I think a fair case has been made that studying the scriptures was a part of Jesus' life, that inviting others into that and doing that in a group way was a part of how Jesus lived in community. Second, did Jesus participate in meals and fellowship? Let me read you this. Uh, this is from Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, was, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Notice that Jesus knows his time is near. He said that. And knowing this, he, he doesn't withdraw into solitude to mourn, but he gathers with his disciples who he has called his friends for a meal and for fellowship. One of the ways he decides it is worthwhile to spend some of his last moments upon the earth is to eat with his friends and to discuss what's going on over that meal. Luke 7, 34 and Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, both say that Jesus came eating and drinking. And he spent so much time doing this that the stuffy religious folks of that day accused him of being a drunkard and a sluggard, right? That was one of their accusations against him. Jesus eats with sinners. Look how often he's doing that. This guy's a drunkard, a sluggard. Now, we see that Jesus not only eats often with his men, but he also does that with sinners. So Jesus doesn't just use meals as a connection point, a time to cultivate relationship and camaraderie between him and his friends, uh, but he also uses meals as an entry point to build relationship with those who do not yet believe. And I think we could learn a lot from the wisdom of Christ in this. I can't explain to you. There is scientific research that backs up the, the reality of uh, 
how eating a meal together cultivates trust. I am not a neuroscientist, and I'm not sure even the neuroscientists totally know, but they would theorize that there's something to sitting down with somebody, being eye to eye, and the trust that that requires. That's why oftentimes in ancient warfare, two opposing generals, the way they would come and make peace would be sit down and have a, a meal together. That's why you hear stuff in the Psalms about a banquet being laid out before my enemies and this type of stuff. This is well known, man. From ancient people forward, there's been this understanding that when you sit down and eat something together, there's something about that. There's something that cultivates trust and opens up an environment where relationship can be built. In addition to everything I've told you, you'll probably remember that Jesus threw some of the biggest picnics of all time, right? And these were not potluck style, bring a dish to pass. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus calls a huddle real quick, and he asks the disciples uh, what they have to eat. They say seven loaves of bread and a, and a few fish. Jesus blesses that little bit of food, and it says he feeds 4,000 folks with that. Then another event is recorded uh, throughout the Gospels where they have uh, five loaves and two fish from a little boy's lunch. Jesus blesses that, and he feeds 5,000 people. Right? So Jesus threw a mean picnic, right? And so this was also centered around him teaching. There was uh, community happening. There was uh, not only with the disciples, but all of those people who were coming to learn from Christ. And so uh, it would have been real cool, I think, to be in one of those picnics. And I, I have always wondered, because I think about things that I, maybe other people don't, what does miracle bread taste like, Right? What After Jesus blesses it, and it goes from a few loaves to enough loaves to feed 4,000 or 5,000 people, what does, that, what does that taste like, man? It's got to be like Panera times infinity, right? It's got to like put Panera to shame, because the Lord did it himself. I mean, he didn't, he didn't bake it, but he made it, and so it's got to be so good, right? I don't know if we're going to get a shot at some of that at the marriage supper with our lamb one day, but you know... In prayer, I've put the request in. So if there ends up being dope bread at the marriage supper of the lamb, just know, find me, and you can thank me later, okay? All right. In Luke 24, in Luke 24, he eats with his disciples after the resurrection, uh, which is one of the ways that he proves to them that he is truly risen bodily, that he's not a ghost or just a figment of their imagination. And so before uh, he dies, after he dies and rises, you know, he's... All the time, the Gospels are filled with accounts of the Master, King Jesus, using meals as a connection point. Uh, even as, as, the, as the resurrected Lord of glory, he's still eating with people. That story blows my mind when they're out fishing, and Jesus, the resurrected Lord of glory, cooks breakfast. I'm like, what? What a Savior, man. Wow, right? It's, I don't know. Doesn't seem like you're that excited about it. I think it's awesome that... Uh, Somebody who defeated sin, death, and everything else, rose from the grave, is willing to uh, love these goofballs that, that he trained for three years um, and cook some fish for him. I think it's really, it says a lot about who our God is and what's revealed about him through the servant heart of Jesus. So we've talked about uh, studying the scriptures together. Jesus did that in community. We've talked about meals together and whether or not Jesus participated in that. I think it's pretty clear that he did. The third element is that Jesus pray in community. Let me read you Mark chapter 14. This is starting in verse 32. It says, They came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into, into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, I'm sure that there's many among us here today, and that may listen to this at some point, who have thought that they have no need to be open and vulnerable with anyone. Jesus left some of the disciples behind, but he brought those three closest with him. They brought, he brought them in close enough proximity to see him work through this most intense struggle of the entirety of his earthly existence. You might think, you know, I can pray to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, so I don't, I don't need anybody else to pray for me. And though I would affirm the truth of what you're saying, that we do have the beautiful privilege of direct access to God through prayer, it does not eliminate the need for one another. We see here that when Jesus is at his most vulnerable, and he is struggling desperately with the weight of what he's about to endure on the cross, he breaks off into a smaller group with his closest friends, and he asked that they would keep watching, they would pray with him. Jesus asked for people to pray with him. You getting where I'm going with this? If King Jesus felt compelled to have his friends praying with him in his time of struggle, then it's probably not a terrible idea for us to do the same. There were specific times, of course, that Jesus got by himself to pray as well. You'll see that recorded through the Gospels. He'll preach to a big crowd, and he's got to go for a minute and be alone with the Father. That is not a bad thing. That's a true thing. But we also see that those times where he would be alone with the Father, that was not a prolonged practice. Instead, we see that throughout his life and ministry, his normative pattern was to be connected to the companions that God had given him. So yes, there was times when he would withdraw to pray, but the, the bulk of what he was doing, his normative pattern, was to be in connected relationship and to be walking through what he was walking through with those that God had given him as companions to do it. We're just talking about following Jesus, friends. That's all we're doing. I'm not trying to put anything on you. I'm not trying to ask anything of you other than let's look at how Jesus lived and if we're going to call ourselves followers of him, then maybe follow him. I don't know. We say, yeah, amen. Now, I, I want to point out what many of you may have already noticed. <clears throat> when Jesus needed his friends the most, they failed him. Each time he came back, they were sleeping. They didn't get the gravity of the situation. They had heard him say some things about he's got to go to the Father, and, but they, didn't, they hadn't put all the, the pieces together, and they were tired. But Jesus' friends, when he needed them the most, they failed him. 
and I'm just going to ask you to, to please not let an experience like that keep you from the benefits of real community. I, I fully acknowledge some of you have experienced similar situations. When you've reached out and you've needed people the most, that's when they weren't there. And that's a real bummer. Here's the truth. The truth is if you are really open and vulnerable with people, you will probably get hurt at some point. That, that's almost guaranteed. And that's, that's really difficult. And I promise you, I don't just know that because I read about it. Okay? I'm with you in that. There's been some times, right, when really could have used somebody to be able to count on, and, and that's when you reach to lean, and that's when they're not there. That'll make you stop leaning real fast. That'll make you get real independent real fast. That'll make you start to decide, you know what, bump that. I'm not, I'm not going to trust anybody or lean on anybody because, you know, I went to lean and fell, so that was even worse. So let me just not do that. Friends, I get that tendency. I get that propensity. I get that that is a temptation. It's probably a temptation for all of us to varying degrees. But please hear this. Jesus, he was failed by his friends, but he knew they were going to fail before he brought them, <laughs> and he still brought them. And he still came up out of the grave and preached good news to him and drew him in close and gave him a chance to reconcile with him and to pledge their allegiance to him. And, and he cooked them breakfast on the beach for Pete's sake. Right? Here's what I'm saying. It, it can be really difficult to go through that, to, to trust, to, to be vulnerable with people and have them let you down. But it isn't near as bad. It's not near as bad as living in the misery of isolation with no real relationships. And I realize that some of you might have figured out coping mechanisms where you feel like you're just fine in a state of isolation and just surface level interactions with people. But listen, uh, that is not what you were made for. And, and though you, you may find coping mechanisms to deal with the misery that comes from that isolation, that is not how God made you and that is not an existence that is going to be sustainable. Uh, you're going to crash and burn at some point. Uh, it's just, you know... Cars were made to drive, man, not, not float across canals. And if you try to float one across the canal, it's just not going to go good, right? It's not what it was made for. Humans weren't made to do this thing alone. And, uh, you know, you could drive the car real fast and maybe skip a little bit and get halfway across, but at some point, she's going down, okay? Uh, super stupid analogy off the top of my head, but I think it got the point across well enough for you to understand, Okay? Who would try to drive a car across a canal? That's not the, I don't need you to psychoanalyze my analogies, okay? All analogies break down if you look at them hard enough, all right? Jeez. All right. Sin always isolates. It keeps us separated from each other, but the gospel has the power to reunite us for our good and for the accomplishing of the mission God has given us. You know, James tells us to confess our sins to one another and, and pray for each other. And, and we see that even King Jesus, though he, he had no sin to confess, he desired for his friends to pray with him, to pray with him and to pray for him. And this clearly is part of why the early church, as they begin to walk out what it looked like to follow Jesus, prayer is one of those things that came to the top of the list, Right? They were known for a few things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship with one another, to breaking bread together, and they were devoted to prayer. These were the things. 
These were the hallmarks of following Jesus. And the gospel does have the power to reunite us for our good. It does have the power to help us accomplish the mission that God has given us. But, but why is that? Well, the gospel unites us because it clears out of the way a lot of the junk that would keep us from coming together and being able to trust one another. See, because the gospel doesn't just teach that we're saved by grace through faith. It teaches what we're saved from. The gospel teaches us that we are all wicked ultimately down in our hearts. It teaches us that each one of us has the potential to fail one another. And so when we understand that when somebody fa fails us, when, somebody, when, when we open up for vulnerability and we actually step into the reality of vibrant community and we feel the awkwardness or the difficulty of that or there's pressure, pain points because of personality differences or maybe because somebody just straight does sin against you, when those things happen, the gospel doesn't allow us to get real offended, just take our ball and go home and re-isolate ourselves because the gospel makes us look in the mirror every day and say, I can do the same thing. I probably have done the same thing and I've been forgiven of much. And so what I'm going to need to do right now is I'm going to need to walk in grace and forgiveness towards this person. The gospel frees us from the foolishness that keeps us apart and allows us to come together and we can trust each other because we're not trusting each other to be perfect. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, so many people, they feel like, okay, I'm not going to trust somebody until I can be really sure they're not going to hurt me. Dear friend, can I please say something to you? You're never going to trust anybody then. If, that's what's if you coming into real relationship is predicated upon that person not having the potential to harm you, then you are just going to be you and Jesus and, and I hope to God he's merciful to you in the meantime and helps you come to the place of understanding that's not what he made, made you for. And he's going to open you up to the reality that he made you to not only receive grace and forgiveness from him, but to give that to others and to experience the gospel worked out in the midst of a community of believers. This is God's design. We're following Jesus. Do I wish there was an easier way where I didn't have to deal with so many people's, uh, you know, opinions and stuff? and emotions and all that. Yeah, sure, I wish there was an easier way sometimes, but, you know, I didn't draw this thing up because I'm not God. Go ahead and say that out loud. Say, I'm not God. Let me hear you. So that's good for you to say. You should say that once a day just, just to help you, you know, remember. It's good. We're not God. We're us. We are benefactors of his grace. We've been pulled in to all that he is doing his eternal redemption plan. We've been saved by his grace. We are his children, but we are not him. And so our place is to learn from him. Our place is to follow him, to submit to him, to joyfully experience what it is to be the, the beneficiaries of all of his love and mercy and his grace, his goodness and his power poured out upon us. Praise God that the gospel has the ability to show us who we are, sinners in need of grace. And it has the power to show us who God is, perfect, willing to forgive, to pour out mercy upon us, and to show us then how we can do that to others. The gospel is the only hope for real community to happen, for authentic, vibrant, loving, trust-filled community. I just want you to know, I'm, I'm still working on it, but I, I want to be more and more willing to trust you even though I know you might violate that trust. Because when that day comes, that's a chance for me to extend gospel grace to you. It doesn't mean that then I have to, I have to throw you away and, and, and go back off on my own again and just decide I'm the only one I can trust. And I hope that each one of us that's been tempted to take that second sinful route 
uh, would come back to a place of, of humility and repentance and understand that we're called to something far more beautiful than, than the solo Christian lifestyle, if that's even a real thing. Amen. Living in authentic community is not just about what you may need from it, but what you may bring to it. Here's the last thing I want to say about why I would lovingly push you towards engaging in Christian community in a real way. Why I would lovingly push you towards paying whatever price you've got to pay to actively engage in a community group and to actively be a part of the life of the church. It's not just because I think all of you are so poor and wretched and blind and naked, though the Bible says you are all of those things without Jesus and you need him desperately. Hallelujah, right? We are those things. But it's not just because I think all of you are so needy that I, I'm trying to coach you into community so you can have these support crutches. That's not the only thing. Here's the other thing. I, I want to read to you something that Paul said to the Romans, and I want you to know that I really believe this about you, this church. I can't talk about every other church, but I just want to talk to this church, these people right here that are a part of Love City. Here's what Paul said to the Romans. And concerning you, my brethren, myself, I'm also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish each other. You see, friends, I believe that God made each one of you. I believe that God has gifted each one of you. And I absolutely believe that when you guys come together, when we come together and we trust each other and we love each other and we begin to really walk together in the picture of community that is painted in God's scriptures, that each one of you brings something to the table that is valuable to the others. I believe that you have from God the gifts to admonish and encourage and help one another, to spur each other on to love and good works. And so, yes, I do want you around each other as much as possible. I want you striking on each other. Proverbs 27 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I believe that this church, the more you're together, the more you're eating together, the more you're studying God's word together, the more you're praying with and for each other, the more we're all going to grow, the more we're all going to increase in the gifting and the calling and our obedience to what it is Jesus has made us for. And so I just want you to know that part of why I'm pushing you is because I believe in you. And I know that God does too. And I'm thankful that that's true. I'm thankful I get to be a part of a church I can really believe in. Praise God. Some questions I would ask you to consider as we end in prayer. Have you tried to be connected to Jesus without being connected to his people? That's a literal impossibility. Have you been hurt and so believed that you're better off on your own? Do you maybe have hidden sin in your life that causes you to keep people at arm's distance to keep them from discovering it? Friends, if any of these are true, or there's any other hindrances to you participating in genuine Christian community, please lay these things today at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to ignite in you a passion for gospel-centered community in your life and in the life of the church. Let's pray to that end together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for what your word says about community. Thank you for showing us the picture in Acts 2 of what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to affect the hearts and minds of people, that as they come together, Lord, that there's these things that happen as a result of the fact that you are our master. We're following you, Lord. I thank you that uh, there's going to be a devotion to your word. There's going to be a hunger for your word. God, please, so many of us, Lord, we... <laughs> 
We, we are distracted by other hungers. There are other things that have come in and they have, they've filled our bellies with garbage, but our, our bellies are still full. God, we ask that you would just take all of that junk away from us and leave us starving for your word, God. May we be satisfied by nothing else but time with you and time in your word. And God, I ask that we would experience the real joy of exploring your word together. We see, Lord Jesus, how you, in your, in your time of ministry on the earth, you took time to spend with people teaching them the scriptures, discussing with them, asking questions and, and answering questions. God, may all of us, may we participate in that beautiful process with one another. May we benefit from the multiple angles and understandings that are within the body of Christ. Thank you, God, that two people can look at the same set of verses, the same parable, whatever it is, God, we can look at, we can look at it and because we've come from two different ways on two different paths to get to the place where we are today. We can, we can have a a varied understanding and perspective that can enrich both of our lives. God, help us to seek out those kind of interactions. Help us, God, to quit settling for the distractions and foolishness that so often we settle for. God, thank you for showing us the importance of eating together. Lord, we're pretty good at that, the eating part. Lord, help us to be more excited about eating together on purpose for the cultivation of relationship. Help us to see this not only as a way to connect deeper with one another as your people, but also as a way to show we don't see ourselves as better than those who have yet to come and know that you are good and worthy of being followed. God, help us. Help us to do that. May we break bread together for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would help us be people of prayer. Lord, we don't, we don't want to neglect this beautiful privilege we have to come before you whether we're on our own or we're gathered together. But God, help us to see in ever-increasing, vibrant color how beautiful it is when we come together to pray with each other and for each other. Thank you for the beautiful truth that we can come together and be truly open and transparent, that the gospel allows us to be accountable to one another because we know there's not going to be harsh judgment, there's not going to be rejection because each one of us knows of how much we've been forgiven. Thank you, God, for cultivating among your people the ability to pray for each other and with each other, to be accountable to one another. God, we know this is your plan. We know you gave us one another as a gift to spur each other on to love and good works. God, please forgive us for our neglect of that gift in every place that we have and help us, anoint us, Lord, by the power of your spirit to walk in authentic community. God, for our good, but most of all, for your glory. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for hearing this prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.